All right, we have some work to do this morning in God's Word, so um, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardcover one in a seat in front of you, underneath, uh, or uh, navigate in your app to the proper chapter. And if I could please ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. 1 Corinthians 6, Almighty God inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words, When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor drunkards. Yes, whoa, hey, there we go. Don, should I put it in front or to the side? I move around. I'm going to have to be careful. Okay, we'll do this. Let's pray. (laughs) God, we thank you um, that you're here this morning. In and among us, working through us, you dwell in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and those of us who have trusted in your Son for salvation. And Lord, this morning we want to consider what you have for us in this passage. Lord, that we might not be defensive, but that we might be open, that we might be laid bare before your very words, Lord, that they would not just enter our ears, but that they would filter down into our heart, um, that our, our actions might be chastened or reformed or changed or encouraged by what we hear this morning. Lord, by your word, you created the universe, and by your words, you have always given your people direction. Lord, by your word, you prophesied of the coming Messiah. By your word, you told the shepherds and the magi of the Messiah who was born. By your word, your son spoke. And we have four gospels to attest to that. Lord, by your word, Peter and Paul and James and many others spread the good news around the world. And Lord, your word tells us that you're coming again, that your son will descend with the clouds, that he will end all injustices and wrongs, that he will judge rightly. And Lord, we look forward to that day. We long for it. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to, as a, as a congregation, as a, as a family, as a church, that we might display the greatness and holiness of God in how we love and treat one another. 
So Lord, this morning there are barriers, there are grudges, there are grievances, there are disputes amongst us. We ask that you would root them out of our own hearts, that you would give us courage and boldness and love to confront, to receive rebukes. And God, may you purify this church even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. I'd like to do a little survey. Uh, I don't have to give away any personal things, but how many of you have been involved in a lawsuit of some kind? Could you please raise your hand? You have been involved in a lawsuit. Raise them high. Why don't you look around? Okay, this is not... This is not just a few people. This is a good chunk. All right. How many of you have served on a jury in a civil case? A civil case, not a criminal case. In a civil case. Okay? All right. Good. That's a a little bit of helpful background for this morning's uh, passage. Uh, and, And some good, helpful background because we need to understand what we're reading this morning. And we need to make some careful um decisions based on this text. In this portion of the letter to the church at Corinth, Paul um, moves on to a slightly different topic while still keeping in mind what we studied last week, and that was the discipline of the sexually immoral man in the church. Uh, We're still involved here with with discipline and uh, relationships between people in the church, and that's important to realize Uh, It's also helpful for us to have some background on Corinth and on Roman law. Now, I'm not not an expert. I just read the experts. Um, This is a crazy week for for me personally with being sick and with technology. And so I'm going to look at my notes a lot more than I normally do um, just to help us understand what's going on here in Corinth. Uh, Based on the passage, I want you to look at verse 1. The problem in the church at Corinth, has to do with, in the ESV, a grievance. Okay? Uh, We're told that in verse 1. At the end of verse 2, you can see trivial cases. Okay? Um, In verse 4, we have the mention of standing. Um, That is a court term. In verse 5, we have the word dispute. And in verse 7, we have it explicitly laid out for us that there is a lawsuit Underway between brothers, between people in the church. And Paul um, is going to go after the church at Corinth actually pretty hard on this matter, um, but not merely because of the lawsuit. So, so the takeaway today is not don't sue each other. That is a takeaway, but that's not the primary takeaway because I imagined if I said that, that many of you would say, well, <laughs> I'm not going to sue anybody in this church anyway, so that was a throwaway sermon. <laughs> okay, that, That's not, we're, we're going to go deeper, we're going to dig a little bit this morning and see what uh, the Apostle Paul was dealing with in the church at Corinth. And we need to understand that um, as much as our American system of law and justice is uh, based on a lot of Roman and Greek ideas from 2000 and 2000 plus years ago, um, there is a, a big difference. Um, if you've served recently in a court or if you pay attention to the news, you may have differing views on uh, what the, the status of our legal system in America is and where it's at. Um, you may be a little discouraged about where things are at in that regard, but I would, um, I would put before you that we have an incredibly better legal system than most places 
um, around the world. There are flaws in our legal system, and there is corruption, no doubt. Um, but it is, under, it is helpful for us to understand uh, the blessing that it is to have um, the legal system that we do have here in America. In ancient Corinth, um, civil cases, which it seems that this is, it seems from the text, this is most definitely a, a civil case, not a criminal case. Um, in, in Corinth, many cases involve matters like legal possession or a breach of contract, damages, fraud, injury, um, things like that. And it seems that at the time that Paul was in Corinth, that the courts had become more and more corrupt in that city and actually throughout the Roman Empire. It was almost impossible to sue up. You understand what I mean? If you were of a lower status, it was almost impossible for you to sue somebody of a higher social status. Pastor Ron has talked about this as we've gone through the book of 1 Corinthians so far, about the patronage system and um, what was going on in Corinth, that you had wealthy people who were also higher up in society, would support and be patrons for those who were artisans or perhaps who needed a loan or who needed help with their business, and that created a dependency between them. Um, And so this was actually rampant throughout Corinth, and the courts had become... um, basically bought by most of the upper class. Uh, So even some of our research tells us that the overwhelming majority of civil cases were brought by the wealthy and powerful against people of lesser status and means. And not only that, um, but around the time of the Isthmian Games, which were the rivals of the Olympic Games, every two years, um, the Greek world would descend on Corinth for the competitions there. And around that time, Uh, One ancient writer said, Corinth was full of lawyers, innumerable, perverting judgment. Okay? Um, And that's that's really important as we we go into this passage. Uh, But it's also important to know, too, that that bribes were readily accepted by judges and jurors alike. Um, It was a lot less uh, open system. Um, It was very closed, and the system clearly favored people of higher status. Um, And there were different, of course, courts, as we have, various courts of various levels that lead to, um, if you appeal, can lead to different places. Um, But this is what one writer wrote about the state of the legal system in uh, Rome and in Corinth. If the fairness of the Roman criminal system was somewhat questionable, the courts of the local magistrates were downright rigged against the poor and the weak. The magistrates who ended up um, helping out, helping judge the cases and appoint jurors, were actually uh, elected by the elites. Okay, so those that were elite elected the people that were going to someday run their trial. And in some places, we know that jurors were actually required to be wealthy. Um, you did not want a poor person or a person who was just a businessman or um, a, a worker to be on the jury. They needed to be Wealthy, And so in Corinth, the modern notion of equal standing before the law did not pertain. It just didn't, it didn't, it wasn't there. Um, John Grisham's novels would have been seen as fanciful fiction. It just, it wouldn't make any sense because you couldn't have the underdog win um, against these guys in almost every single case. And so as we come to that, we have to understand that the church in Corinth, which had only in the last four or five years begun, even started before Paul came there with his team, planted the church, um, stayed there for about 18 months, um, 
getting these people into the doctrine of the church, helping them to understand how to live as Christians. And so just a few years later, the church obviously, as we've already seen in this letter, is struggling with how to live in an ungodly world and be a godly example, influence, and live according to the gospel. And so what we're talking about in this passage is what one commentator said, a failure of the church to be the church. Paul is addressing the church's failure to be what it is professed to be. And so we enter into the first four verses. I'd like you to, you have a blank page of notes. (laughs) Um, Verses one through four, family feuds need to be settled before the right court. If you're taking notes, verses one through four, family feuds need to be settled before the right court. And again, this is with an understanding that Paul has taught the Christians in Corinth, you are real family. Um, it's not like I have my nuclear and extended family and then when we go on church on Sunday, we say, oh, hey, brother, hey, how's it going? And then don't really relate on a family level. No, what Paul has said is, you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, therefore you are blood, brothers and sisters. And so you ought to act like a family. And that is what we see here. Family feuds need to be settled before the right court. Take a look at verse 1. There's a grievance. And, and Paul just doesn't even tell us what the grievance is. In fact, he just assumes there will be. Right? There will be grievances. Look, there will be grievances in this church. There will be disputes because there were sinners rubbing up against sinners. Some of you didn't get a good sleep last night. You're grumpy today. Right? <laughs> it's true. Okay? So there's ample reason for us to expect that, that sinners bumping up against each other with different preferences, with different styles, with different backgrounds, with different physical limitations, will have grievances against one another. And in this case, Paul says, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In fact, in the King James, how many of you are using the King James right now? Anybody? Okay, a few of you are using the King James. Okay, in the King James, the first word of verse 1 is dare, because that's what Paul wrote in Greek. He put dare, he put that verb right at the very front of the verse to emphasize it. So it could be said something like this. How dare you go to court against one another, brothers, when you have a grievance? Paul, in fact, it seems as he's writing this, becomes more and more outraged as the paragraph goes on. Um, We've been talking about um, uh, uh, factions in the church, sorry, factions in the church um, in the first several chapters of this letter. And Paul kind of went after them, uh, but not to this level. He's, he's, really, um, he's really worked up about what this means. And so, in verse 1, um, we see that he is, he's just shocked at the audacity of what he's heard is going on at the church in Corinth. What he says is, if a family has a dispute, why would you go to those outside of the family? Not only outside of the family, but those who are, as described in this passage, unrighteous. Instead of the saints, and he gets back to that word that he's used in this letter. You're saints. That, mean, that word means holy ones. Um, you are belonging to God. You're, you're different. Why would you take a dispute outside of the church? Um, he, he, he's just absolutely blown away that this would happen. And in fact, we know that the word grievance here, um, used in, uh, in Greek, is the most common litigation involving property disputes. So very, very uh, likely this is some kind of property dispute, and as we'll see later, involving finances. 
Okay, that, that money is on the line. And if there's a grievance like this, shouldn't we take it to the saints rather than the unrighteous judges? And so then in verse 2, Paul uses a phrase he will use throughout chapter 6. We'll see this next week as well. He says, do you not know? Okay, this, this is, he's using a rhetorical device to get them to think. They should know this. He's assuming that they do, but he's reminding them. And it's probably tinged with a little bit of sarcasm as Paul uses this. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Okay, if you as saints will judge the world, then these trivial cases, these cases involving normal matters of everyday life, can't you deal with those? Can't you take those And this, this idea of the saints judging comes to us from Daniel 7.22. So later on today or this week, if you want to look at the book of Daniel, um, this is the prophecy uh, involving the Son of Man who is to come and how he's going to set up his kingdom. And involved in that setting up of the kingdom, Daniel says the saints, the believers, okay, will actually somehow, we don't know exactly how, will assist in judgment. So there is some kind of role for the saints to play in judging um, the world. Okay? Uh, this also comes up in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19 and also Luke 22. So Matthew 19 and Luke 22, Jesus also mentions um, that the, the saints will judge. This also comes up in Revelation 20 in the, our discussion of the millennium and what happens at the end of time. The saints will help in judgment. And so what, what Paul has done here is actually said, he said, you've been made new. You've been changed. And this will lead on a future trajectory to someday you will be judging the world. And so somehow, in Paul's mind, the future has actually come back to now and plays a role in today. That because of this one day happening, then right now, you are competent, you are able as a community to try these cases without taking them to the legal authorities. Move on to verse 3. He says it again. Do you not know? That we are to judge angels? And that's a shocking statement. Um, we're not, we're not, we don't see a lot of this in the rest of the scripture, so there's kind of some conjecture here. But Paul clearly says that we will be in charge of judging angels. Um, that would be fallen angels, demons, that have turned away from God. We see in Jude, verse 6, um, that there are some demons who have been locked away and are awaiting judgment. Um, so what would appear to me is that someday you and I will stand... Uh, before, well, these angels will stand before us and we will somehow, with the Lord, judge these angels. And if we're going to judge angels, look at his argument, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? If God is going to qualify you to judge angels, then you can, you can take on the things of this life. And that's just a, a very basic Greek statement that just meant stuff, things, um, matters, not not. Not matters of huge uh, importance, but just kind of the, the daily things that happen. So this argument helps us to understand that Paul had an expectation that in the church, disputes and grievances were to be taken care of as family business. Now if you have an NIV, 1984 NIV, verse 4 looks a whole lot different. I don't have a lot of time to explain that, but that just has to do with um, how the interpreters decided to translate that. I think that the ESV is a better way of putting that. There's disagreement there. 
Um, the other option would be that verse 4 indicates that even the lowliest in the church should be judges. Um, I think that the, the point is well taken. Um, that in verse 4, Paul is saying on some level that the church is able, the church is gifted even, to take care of these disputes among ourselves. In fact, it was highly inappropriate in the Roman world for an intra-family affair to be taken to court. Um, That would have dishonored and shamed that family immensely. It would have brought that entire family down in social standing. People would have looked at the patriarch of the family with with shame. They would have have lowered their estimation of him if he had allowed this intra-family debate to get out. Not because we're trying to keep something bottled up, and try to block out who we are, but because we're family. And because family, relations ought to be able to lovingly work with one another to resolve disputes. Now, at this point, I would like to say that that's why there's a big difference here between um, between a, a civil case and a criminal case, or, or something going on um, between people that's a dispute about a lawsuit and a difference between something going on that's criminal. So, So we would say if there is something criminal going on in a family or in a situation that you're not to say, well, I I can't do anything about it because 1 Corinthians 6 says I shouldn't take it to the authorities. No, Paul in Romans 13 and Peter in 1 Peter 2 and Paul throughout the book of Acts uses his Roman citizenship, um, uses the rights that he has in various ways because they are his to use. But normally he does that when dealing with the secular authorities. If there was something going on inside of the church, it was to be kept there and to work on it. If it was, if it was in a civil way or if it was a dispute. However, there's crime going on. If someone is, if someone is being beaten, if someone is being abused, um, we're not saying stay silent, let's let the church take care of that. There's a crime being committed. And so I, what I would say is if, if there's a child being abused or a, or a wife being abused, that person needs to get out, they need to call the authorities, and they need to call the elders. Um, that, that's the difference between what's being taken care of here in 1 Corinthians 6 and what's happening if a crime is being committed. We don't say, well, that pastor sexually abused that little boy, and, but, but it, let's just take care of that in church, inside of the church. We've seen how that's blown up, correct, in our culture? We've seen the, the evil that has happened by keeping things under wraps like that. So this is not referring to crimes being committed. This is referring to lawsuits which stem from disputes and from uh, grievances with one another. Okay, so let's move on to verse 5. And, and Paul says something um, very, very direct to the people of the church of Corinth. He says, I say this to your shame. And, and to us that sounds like, well, shame on you, right? <laughs> okay, but, but that's not the culture that Paul lived in. Everything hinged on honor and shame. And that was how you were viewed in society and is how you were able to uh, operate in society, whether or not you were honored or shamed. In fact, back in chapter 4, if you want to turn back a page, or it might just be on the other page, just look across 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14, when dealing with all the factions and the division in the church, Paul said in 4.14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. So even the tone here has shifted. Here he says, I am going to shame you. I say this to your shame. He wants to deliver a very direct message to the church at Corinth 
that this is shameful and they ought to be aware that it is. And then he says this, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough? Hmm. What do we talk about in chapters 1 and 2? The wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the orators in Corinth. Um, the wisdom that Paul said is, is weakness. And then he said the foolishness of God is stronger than the wisdom of the world. And they were disputing and bickering about who was wiser, who, was, um, who had higher honor in the church. And here Paul says, just kind of a little zinger in there, is there no one in your church wise enough to take care of this? Are you so foolish? Are you, are you so not gifted that you can't take care of this? You have to take it outside of the church to the authorities? Can it be there's no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between brothers? But verse 6, here's what actually was happening. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So here's the problem with this whole situation. When this goes outside of the church to the court... Inevitably, in a lawsuit, someone is accusing someone else of a wrong. And when it is a brother and a brother inside of a church, there is an explicit understanding that one brother is accusing another brother of wronging him. And so now we're going to go before unbelievers and expose this to the watching world. Because, make no mistake, the world is watching. Anyone see the Newsweek magazine last week? attacking the veracity of the Bible happens every Christmas. It's not really that surprising. It's going to happen at Easter. Okay, Uh, It happens all the time. But the world is watching. The world loves to pounce on scandal in the church. And what does that do to people's understanding of the church? Well, if they don't go to church, if they don't have any Christian friends, um, their understanding of church is, oh, priests abuse little boys. Oh, megachurch pastors do this. Oh, this, this happens, and that's what it means to be in the church. Why would I want anything to do with that? So when we air our petty grievances to the courts, we are destroying our testimony before a watching world. And there are parallels here. Paul is actually basically just saying the way it worked in the Old Testament is the way it should work in the New Testament. Back in Deuteronomy 18, if you remember, Moses is overwhelmed with the people of Israel in the wilderness. He just can't handle all of the disputes going on. And he's the only judge. And so from sunrise to sunset, he's got people coming before him with disputes. And he's just sick and tired of dealing with these people as the only judge. And his father-in-law comes in and says, Hey, Mo, um, here's a little problem. You can't do this. This is not good for you. This is not good for the people. Appoint lower judges. And so Moses goes, That's a great idea. And he sets up lower courts. And he only receives okay, the ones that have been appealed up to him. All right? he, he basically is, uh, is acting as the Supreme Court. And so Paul says, we've got to be able to handle disputes within the church. And Jesus said this in Matthew 18. Jesus gave us a, a very clear step-by-step process to deal with sin and dispute in the church. If your brother has sinned against you, by yourself, go and deal with it. If he will not listen to you, go get two or three witnesses and come back. If he will not listen to you, okay, go here and then take it to the church. They won't listen to the church. It'll be to you as a heathen, as a tax collector. This is church discipline, what we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There ought to be ways that we can handle disputes with one another inside the church because Jesus died to forgive our sins. 
Okay? Jesus did not die to make a church full of squabbling people that can't handle stuff. He gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live the lives we're supposed to live. Which means he's given us the Spirit and the power and boldness to confront sin. And he's given us the Spirit to allow us to be humble enough that when we are confronted that we say, Yes, you're right. I'm sorry. That was wrong. So we are empowered to do both of those things. And the church at Corinth, which was incredibly gifted... Paul said that in chapter 1, and when we get into chapters 12, 13, and 14, they have all kinds of spiritual gifts. They're an amazing congregation, which speaks even more to their lack of being able to deal with these problems. When we get to uh, verses 7 and 8, we get to uh, another point that Paul has to make, and I think that this is just incredibly important. Uh, Verses 7 and 8, if you're taking notes, sometimes winning is losing, and losing is winning. Sometimes winning is losing and losing is winning. Watch the radical nature of what Paul teaches the church at Corinth in these verses. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And keep in mind that you is plural. So when this letter is being read to the church, they're not looking around going, who's the you? The you is us. The you is we. We are the you. Okay, it's y'all or all y'all. Right, that's who he's referring to. Why, uh, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? I'll tell you why not. Because I'm an American and I have rights. You better give them to me. Right? This is a free country. Right? I mean, that's how, that's how, we, that's how we feel. That's how when you get pulled over, when you get when someone gives you a ticket you don't think you deserve, when something happens and you feel like that shouldn't have happened to you because you're an American and I got rights and we get mad and we're going to take them to court, we're going to make sure this is right. Justice! <laughs> and, and by the way, praise the Lord that we live in America and we do have freedoms. Okay? However, Paul in multiple places in the New Testament says, don't use your freedom in a wrong way. Do not abuse your freedom. And here he's saying the same thing. So he is saying, it would be better for you, church, to accept the wrong done to you than to air it before the watching world. In fact, it would be better for you to take a loss. Look at the next part. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's a financial term. And that probably gives us a hint as to what's going on with the lawsuit. He's saying, why not take the hit? Why not take the loss? Why not lose the money Okay, rather than spoil your testimony before the watching world. What an incredible... What, what, if, what if we acted like that? <laughs> what if we would rather be wronged and defrauded than get our rights and destroy our testimony? What if it was more important to us what our testimony and our actions said to the watching world than what our rights were? We would be a bright beacon of light on a big, tall hill. <laughs> Shining to a dark world that just would not understand that. Why wouldn't you get your rights? Why wouldn't you fight for your rights? Why wouldn't you do that? Because there's something more important. There is something more important. It's more important that we understand what it means, verse 9 in a second, to inherit the kingdom of God than to inherit money and possessions here on earth for 70 or 80 years. When seen in that light, 70 or 80 years of financial success will look like foolishness in light of eternity. Fighting and scrapping 
for every last cent because a feeling of wrong has been sensed. We'll look foolish when we stand before the throne of King Jesus. Verse 8, Paul turns it on them. You yourselves, church of Corinth, you wrong and defraud, and even your own brothers. This was, this was unthinkable. Just as last week it was unthinkable that this man in the church of Corinth would be sleeping with his stepmom, that not even the pagan world would accept that. Same thing here. The pagan world would, ne- would not think of it, except in the most extreme circumstances of family business getting out and going before the courts. Paul is possibly outraged. He's bursting out. He is saying, do whatever it takes, church, to settle matters long before a lawsuit would even be an option. So again, it is not, don't sue each other, village. Although that is the case. What is at work here is, figure out how to live together as a family. Make it work. Resolve disputes. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to rule one day with him. We're going to judge the angels. We're going to judge the world. We can, not because we're awesome, but because he's awesome, we can take care of these things. We can. He's given us power. We need to finish. We need to play uh, Pastor Ron's video now because um, I wanted to, even though Ron's not here, uh, probably close to 20 years ago now, Pastor Ron sold his business to um, move into full-time pastoral ministry, and he was defrauded. Um, he, uh, there were things lied about, and he lost thousands and thousands of dollars and had to wrestle with 1 Corinthians 6 because he was dealing with other people that claimed to be brothers in Christ. So let's watch a short video from Pastor Ron. Good morning, village. Susie and I are away today, but I wanted to share a lesson that God taught us from today's passage. The text Pastor Andrew is teaching today is not just for the church at Corinth. It's just as applicable to you and me today. Texts like this are easy to agree with when you're not in the middle of something, though. When you're not in the middle of someone wronging you, when money's not on the line. And and Susie and I were faced with that just before becoming a pastor here at Village. I was selling my business to, to become a pastor and had found some buyers that were believers. And long story short, they ended up defrauding us of thousands of dollars and forging our names on things. And we had creditors at the door. And it, it just was a very, very difficult situation that I never thought I'd be in. We had people encouraging us to sue them and giving us lawyers' numbers. And, and that's where we had to make a decision. Because they were fellow believers, do we obey 1 Corinthians? And so in the end, we decided to do what we could to reconcile with them, but to not sue them and not take them to court, as that would have just drugged Jesus' witness into court as we were all believers. Hard decision. We learned a couple of lessons through it, though. The first is that obeying God and obeying His Word is, is not always easy, and it's not always financially beneficial, but God is always faithful. He didn't let us down. He was with us through that whole process. And I'm so glad we made the decision we did. In the end, I think for us, it helped us trust God more, more than I would have if I had a nice nest egg to to rely on. Second lesson, and maybe the more difficult of the two, was we had to learn to forgive them and let it go, let the situation go, and let God handle it. They never acknowledged what they had done, and so it was a long process and one that we needed God's help to do, to release it to Him. But in the end, there was freedom in knowing that Almighty God is handling it, and I don't have to. Never be afraid to obey God's word. It may not make sense to the world, 
But that's where an awesome opportunity comes in to be a light to the world and to show them who Jesus is. Nothing is more important than God's glory. All right, so even there, our, our own pastor has been involved in a situation like this and learned many tough things from it. Well, we need to, to um, close out here. And verses 9 through 11 seem to be maybe a kind of a U-turn in the passage. But what um, the Apostle Paul is doing here is kind of just reminding them, you're different. You're new. You're changed. You can't act like the rest of the world. Because when you act like the rest of the world, you don't shine for Jesus. You don't show any kind of difference. Why be a Christian if Christians are no different? Why desire forgiveness if forgiveness doesn't change anything? Why look for salvation if salvation doesn't change the way that we live? And so in these verses, Paul actually points out ten sinners. Notice he's not pointing out sins. Uh, These are nouns. These are people that live habitually in these sins. So what he does not say is people that won't inherit the kingdom are people that uh, are sexually immoral once. Or people that uh, practice homosexuality once. That people steal once. What he's saying is that when lives are characterized by unrepentant, repeated, rebellious sin, that is evidence that there has been no change. Because look at verse 11. This is one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible. After naming all of these sins that were rampant in Corinth, he said, and such were some of you. Or it could be better said, this is what you used to be. Remember Corinth? Remember Corinthians? This is what you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There has been a change. So no longer can you just act like the unrighteous. You'll notice in verse 9 that he mentions the unrighteous, which is how he started in verse 1. How dare we take uh, disputes and grievances to the unrighteous outside the church. And then in verse 9, he says, here's what the unrighteous are like. They're like the ones that won't inherit the kingdom of God. They'll be standing on the outside when the kingdom comes. So because of that very fact, because we're changed, because we're washed, sanctified, justified, we can act like it. Like we're given power to act like it actually happened. Like it's real. And so it seems to me that our default setting in the church needs to be to seek out mediation and intervention from within this church body. This is not to deny helpful ministries or relationships with other churches or if you're not in the church, a denominational setting that helps resolve disputes. But it seems that we are a covenant community. And our covenant is with God and with each other. And so when we take our disputes outside of this covenant community, we are breaking that covenant. Because we are not acting in line with the way that Jesus has set up the church to be. We need to think very clearly about how we do that. And that leads us right into the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate now. This is a celebration of what the Lord has done for us by being wronged and being defrauded where He did not need to give in to these false accusations. And yet he did not say, I have my rights, that's untrue, hold on a second, let me get my lawyer. Jesus went to the cross because we were the ones who had sinned and who had earned a debt that we could not pay. And yet, Jesus went to the cross, he gave us his body and his blood, he paid the sacrifice so that there is now an atonement for sins. We don't have to grit our teeth and get our fists all in a ball and just try harder and 
be gooder people. Rather, we have a Savior who has, in our place and for our sin, sacrificed himself. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, please take time to think about this great passage for a communion Sunday. Are there disputes and grievances among us? And are they not being handled? And if so, then this is an opportunity to ask the Lord for boldness to confront that or for humility to accept it. That we need to be the people of God who can celebrate the body and the blood in a holy and righteous way. So let's do that even now.